Scripture lesson for this morning comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, starting with chapter 20, verse 45, and going through chapter 21, verse 6. Listen now for God's word to you. In the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw rich people putting their gifts into the treasury. He also saw a poor widow with two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in all that she had to live on. When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another, all will be thrown down. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So when, he when Heather and I travel to a new city, there are two things that we absolutely must do. The first and most importantly is to find the best places to eat in that city. We want something unique, something that only that city has to offer or their special version of whatever it is, pizza, or it's usually pizza. And then the second thing we do whenever we visit a new city is we visit historic and landmark churches. Now, that second one is probably something I insist upon and Heather puts up with. Um, it's one of the prices she has to pay being married to a pastor, I guess. Uh, but I love visiting historic landmark churches. I remember when we were living on the East Coast, when we went to New York City for the first time, one of the first places we stopped was Trinity Church Wall Street, this beautiful historic congregation in lower Manhattan. They have the little cemetery still outside the church. You can find Alexander Hamilton's grave there. And you're also going to be in one of the wealthiest congregations in the world. They have an endowment of $10 billion. That's billion with a B. Uh, all of that traces back to 1705 when Queen Anne gave them 215 acres in lower Manhattan. Now, the church still does not own 200 acres in lower Manhattan, but land leases and real estate development are a good way to bring that endowment number up. Um, but apart from how jealous and envious I am of that endowment, I would settle for a, a fraction of that. Um, it is an incredibly beautiful uh, congregation, incredibly be beautiful building. Uh, there's also the time that Heather and I were visiting Chicago after we had uh, moved away from there. We were uh, visiting Fourth Presbyterian Church on Michigan Avenue, of all places. Uh, it is one of the largest churches in our denomination, somewhere around 5,000 members. And we were walking around the building, it was open to the public, and we kind of strayed into an area where I guess we weren't supposed to be. And a nice church lady walked up to us and said, can I help you with something? Which is a way of her saying, what are you doing back here? But she, I explained to her I was a Presbyterian pastor and that I had been under care of that Presbytery at one point. And so she gave us this impromptu tour of Fourth Presbyterian Church and their, their brand new edition at the time. It was an amazing experience. And then there was our trip to Washington, D.C., uh, and we went and visited the National Cathedral. I'm sure a lot of you have been to the National Cathedral, and a, 
in a lot of ways, it kind of functions as the spiritual home of the nation. You have presidents and senators who've had their funerals there. I remember when I was a kid watching the interfaith prayer service following 9-11, the Episcopal, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church has his seat there. Uh, With all of this exciting stuff going on at the National Cathedral, it's hard to remember that it's still a functioning, worshiping community. That they gather together for worship every single Sunday, they participate in mission and ministry in their community and around the world. Uh, But visiting the National Cathedral is a little different than most of the things you visit in Washington, D.C. It's a a little further out from the National Mall. You got to take the metro. Then, when you go in the summertime, like we did, you got to walk in that hot, swampy Washington, D.C. air. And if you know me, you know how much I loved that. And also, it's different from most churches you visit because most churches are just kind of generally open to the public. But the National Cathedral, you have to pay to take a tour of. And I don't remember the exact cost, but I remember the price being a lot more than I expected. And Heather gave me this look like, do you really want to tour this church? Um, But I was insistent. I wouldn't be telling the story if we didn't pay for it. Um, And so we paid the money. We started walking around. And I was really drawn to, uh, first, the pulpit that's in that sanctuary. It's this massive pulpit that has engraving in it. This tells the story of how the Bible was translated into English. Uh, The pulpit even has a name. You know, a a pulpit's important when it has a name. Uh, Maybe we should name this one. Uh, Gretchen told me that if we named it, maybe I would stand in it. Um, uh, It's called the Canterbury Pulpit, and some of the nation's most famous preachers and pastors have stood in that pulpit. Uh, Martin Luther King gave his last Sunday sermon before he was assassinated at the Canterbury uh, pulpit. Uh, But I think really the piece of the Washington National Cathedral that really draws my attention is all of the stained glass that they have around. Um, The stained glass is absolutely stunning. Uh, Different stories from throughout the Bible. Uh, They also have stories throughout American history. The one that I found the most interesting was the moon window. That reminds us of our spiritual connection to the cosmos. It also has a piece of moon rock in it, which I find especially interesting. Um, There's all sorts of other interesting things around the National Cathedral. I'm giving you a a visual, an audio tour of it. Um, On the dark side of the building, there is a uh, Darth Vader gargoyle. Um, You guys caught onto that quicker than the 9 o'clock did. Uh, On the dark side of the building, there is a Darth Vader gargoyle. That's funny. I think that's awesome. And then, of course, there are uh, small little chapels throughout the building for smaller services, for prayer. And Heather and I stopped outside of one of those, and they had those little candle stands where you can light candles in memory of loved ones. And so um, we, wrote, we lit candles for our deceased grandparents, which was a moving experience for the both of us. And then I looked off to the side of this little candle stand, and I, I saw a little small box where you could put offerings into And I'll admit that I was rather cynical about this. Why in the world does the Washington National Cathedral have a box where people can put small little offerings in? This is not a church that struggles with funding. They charge people to walk around their building. They have a a moon rock in one of their stained glass windows. They probably have endowments totaling in the millions and donors totaling in the millions. Why in the world would they have this little box where you can put in small offerings? The same question, I think, could be asked of the temple in Jerusalem. The the temple in Jerusalem, says one scholar, did not struggle with funding, despite the fact that its institution was massive, its property was expansive, and its accoutrement was lavish. 
Uh, it's easy to not struggle with funding when you have a monopoly. Uh, the way that uh, early Judaism develops, the theology that kind of wins out, is that the temple in Jerusalem is the only place where sacrifices to God can be offered, the only place where the priests can work. Now, of course, synagogues pop up all around the surrounding area, and then they become the, the center of rabbinic Judaism that uh, goes on after Jesus' life. But the temple is the only place where you can practice those religious rituals of offering sacrifices to God. So if you don't like the coffee served at coffee hour, you don't like the, the color of the carpet or the thing the priest said in his sermon, you're out of luck. There's nowhere else you can go. This is the only place in town. And they had, made, they had these ways of making money. And one of those was the selling of animals for sacrifices uh, in the temple. Uh, so on the, King Herod had built this massive temple mount that supported the structure of the temple. It's the place that still exists today, the western wall where Jews still offer their prayers. That's the part of the temple that's still standing. And so they set up all of these stalls to offer these animals for sacrifice, it's to sell them to pilgrims who are coming from all over the Jewish diaspora. And it makes sense why you would have this, because they're not going to be bringing animals with them, especially animals that have to meet certain specific requirements. So you're going to sell them there in the temple. But of course, what happens is they start price gouging people. They have nowhere else to buy these animals. It's sort of like when you go to the airport and you can't bring food in, and so you spend $25 on a roast beef sandwich because you, if you're hungry, that's what you got to eat, right? So all of this is happening. Uh, they had also made themselves the trustees of the estates of widows, um, and they made money through all of these hidden fees. Sounds familiar, right? It's not just your bank that's getting wealthy off of hidden fees, right? Not just Chase and Wells Fargo and Fifth Third and all these other places. They're making money off of out being the trustees of these estates. And they also had what was known as a temple tax. It was required that every Jewish family pay this tax. Whether you participated in the rituals of the temple or not, you had to pay this tax. So the temple in Jerusalem was well-funded. They didn't struggle making money. But you have to wonder why then do they have this little box where people can put offerings into? And of course, the cynical answer is it's because they're greedy. Uh, the temple aristocracy was notoriously corrupt, devouring the homes of widows and orphans. It's the, the sort of people who run this place are the ones that Jesus warns us about before the temple. He, he says these are the people who make long, pious prayers in their long, flowing robes that on the way to worship, to cash the, after worship, to cash that check from the widow's estate that are going to make their prayers to God. Uh, these are the people that Jesus warned us about. And uh, and remember that Jesus is upset with the temple and its corruption. Who can forget that favorite Sunday school scene where he overturns the tables and drives out all the money changers? By the way, if anyone ever asks you, what would Jesus do? That's an acceptable answer. <laughs> you know, Jesus is not the only one who criticizes the temple. There are a lot of people who are upset with the corruption that takes place within its walls. In some of these communities, they head off into the wilderness and kind of do their own alternative thing, and there are others who are hoping for some sort of reform. But there Jesus is in the temple, and he is sitting there by the money box as people are coming in to make their offerings. And in come these exceedingly wealthy people with their bags full of money, and they start dropping coins into the temple treasury. 
Uh, Jesus is watching all of this happen. Think about that for a second. When we make our offerings, it's sort of this private thing, right? It's between me and God, we say. But here's Jesus watching everybody make their offerings. And it's sort of a, a game. It's like they're trying to outdo each other. You can kind of imagine the sound of the coins as they drop into the temple treasury. And then in walks a widow. And all she has with her are two small copper coins whose total value equals a fraction of a penny. How do you imagine this widow? I think most of us imagine her as elderly. But I did a, a quick Google search on this, pair, on this story, and a lot of the ways that she's depicted as a young mother with children hanging around her legs. Coming into the temple and offering these two coins that are seemingly worthless, are actually worthless. And she gives all that she has. And we have to wonder why she does this. I have to wonder, too, how does Jesus know that this is all this woman has to her name? You know, of course, the Sunday school answer is that Jesus has kind of like got psychic powers and knows what we're thinking. That's what I was taught growing up. But my sneaking suspicion is that Jesus has had an encounter with this woman before, that they have met somewhere along the line, that this woman has encountered Jesus as he preaches about the kingdom of God, as he talks about love and grace and mercy and compassion, especially for people like her. She's seen him as he sits around the table with the wrong people. Maybe she was there at the temple the day that he overturned all of the tables and he, she heard him say that my father's house is meant to be a house of prayer for all people. And so maybe for the first time in a long time, this widow, however you imagine her, believed that the temple was going to be what it was always meant to be, a place of love, a place of prayer, a place that didn't devour the homes of people like her, but had compassion and concern for her. My sense is that she gives because she is swept up and she has been captivated by the love and the grace of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ. I think this is the reason why so many of us give. She doesn't give to save the institution. What could two small copper coins do to save the temple? In fact, one scholar says that nobody who gave that day could save the institution. Forty years from that story onward, the temple is destroyed and it still has not been rebuilt. No, she doesn't give to save the institution. She doesn't give for the priestly garments or the gold or whatever it might be. She gives because she believes that her giving can make a difference in the world around her, that it can have an impact. And here's the amazing thing to me. All of those other people who come in before her and drop those huge bags of money into the temple treasury, we don't talk about them anymore. But we talk about her. She had left an indelible mark on the world, that small, little, seemingly insignificant offering, and we still talk about her. You know, today is Commitment Sunday, this chance where we have to fill out our pledge cards and make commitments for the following, for the budget for next year, and we call it Commitment Sunday, but I would prefer to call it Celebration Sunday. I think that's a much better name for it. It's, it's celebrating all that God has given to us, 
that we live within God's abundance and not within scarcity, that God has given us more than we could ever imagine. And this, I think, is a sacred day, an opportunity for us to give back to the God who has given so much to us. And I'm going to say something now that might make the, the more budget-minded people cringe just a little bit. John and Ron, hold on to your seats. It's going to be okay. Don't give today to the institution. Give today because your giving can make a difference in the world. Give today because you have experienced the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. Give today because you have found a community here Think about what our giving has done in the world around us. We certainly have more than two small copper coins, but we still are not a large church. But we do amazing things in the world around us. Think about the fact that there are mothers now who have tight budgets, who have diapers for their children because we give. Think about the, the people down at Crossroads Soup Kitchen who have enough to eat on the days that we go down there and serve. Think about the people at the Welcome Inn who have long john underwear, that's a mission thing, and coats for the winter months. Think about the fact that this is a community for so many people who were ready to give up on faith and religion, who have been burned by faith, and yet the way they've been able to hold on to it is because they've joined here. Think about what your giving does. Think about the legacy, the impact on your giving, the ways that others talk about it. So as we prepare to give our pledges, to celebrate all that God has given to us, our final question for our legacy tree that is now full bloom as the trees outside lose their leaves, this is the final question for you to write on that leaf and to put it in the offering plate as it comes by. I give to Greenfield because. I give to Greenfield because. Take a few moments to reflect.